Well, good evening. Good evening. Oh, lovely to see you all again. And a special welcome tonight if uh, this is your first time worshipping with us. Um, trust that maybe you'll have the courage to stick around at the end and catch up and make yourself known to us. Uh, but we welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've come together tonight to worship God to encourage each other in our faith, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Him. I want to invite you to join with me in worshipping tonight by standing. Let us stand together and hear God's call for worship, which we find in Psalm 137. Not Psalm 137, Psalm 133. <clears throat> Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you as we have come here tonight. We've come here with a single purpose that is for worship. Lord God, you have called us to assemble and you promise, as in this psalm here, a blessing, a special blessing on us as we gather together in unity and oneness of heart and mind. Thank you that your spirit gives us this unity, that it is a unity founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would work in each of us, each of our hearts and lives, for your glory and honour, we ask. Amen. Well, come, let us join together in singing our opening song, Bind Us Together, Lord.
please take a seat. Well, as some of you may know, we read each evening through the parts of the Bible that unfold the biblical story, and tonight we're up to the book of 1 Samuel and chapter 11, 1 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to read that, I'll read that for us tonight, 1 Samuel and chapter 11. So this is after Saul has been established as king, as the people of Israel have asked for a king. Saul is now the king. He's the man who stands out, head and shoulders above everyone else. And uh, God is pleased to even use Saul for this time until Saul finally uh, rebels against God. But in verse 11, sorry, chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of all the people, and the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? They told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. And when he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel, with 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow... We will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. When Samuel said to the people, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. 
There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Amen, and may God bless to us that reading of his word. It's um, quite instructive, isn't it? You know, when you're reading this section about the life of Saul, it just seems great, doesn't it? It's like, he's the man. Uh, he seems, nothing seems to go wrong. He's doing everything right. But of course, it's a reminder, isn't it? And it's a check to our own hearts that, um, you know, you know how the Bible says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, I know that that can be used in a wrong way to try and undermine a person's assurance. But I believe that here it's, it's this, you know, when you read this, it's a reminder that here saw he was walking in the Lord's ways. But we know that as he rebelled against the Lord, as he turned away from God and turned to his own strength and tried to, you know, plan things out his own way, that's where we see him departing from God and the, and the blessing and favor of God being removed from him. So it's instructive for us, isn't it? Not to undermine our faith, but to remind us that we must always walk in obedience and faith in the Lord. We're going to join together um, just in that mind and in that uh, spirit. We're going to sing a song which comes from the words of Saul's successor. I, and I'm, I, have I got the right order of service? Because I'm <laughs> creating me a clean heart? Okay, we're yeah, all right. Um, which comes from Saul's successor, David. Um, who, he, as he fell into sin, he, we see true repentance occurring, not like Saul, how Saul responded with arrogance. With David, it's repentance. Created me a clean heart, O Lord. Yeah. 
please take a seat. We got any children who'd like to come to the front tonight? I see some down the back there. We've got Arthur. You guys want to come and join us? Maybe an adult bring you? A brave adult? Yeah. We've got seats up the front here. Come on, guys. I don't bite much. Come on. Seats for you here. Come on. Don't be shy. Come and sit here. Come and sit here. You boys move along. Move along. Move along. Move along. Here we go. All right. Okay. All right. Come and sit here. Room for everybody. That's awesome. Oh, one more, more room. Here, here we go. And more room, just room for you, right there. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a story that um, something that happened to me when I was six years old, so long ago. I may have even told you the story before, but you just have to forgive me because when you're old, you start to repeat yourself. And um, when I was six years old, I was driving in the car with my mum, and my friend Clifford was in the car. And we got talking about guns, because, you know, I thought guns were pretty cool as a boy. like talking about guns. And I said to Clifford, Clifford, my father has got three guns. Which was true. My father did. He had a uh, 303 Enfield, he had a shotgun, and he had a semi-automatic 22 with a broken-off butt uh, <laughs> stock. And that's another story. Anyway, we weren't, we weren't bank robbers. Um, anyway... <laughs> And I said to him, my father's got three guns. And Clifford said to me, my father has got 100 guns. <laughs> uh, we were six years old. And I still remember that. Now, what do you think? What do you think about that? Do you think Clifford had, his dad had 100 guns? Do you, what, do you, what do you think was going on? What, you, don't think, you don't think he had 100 guns? Anyone else want to think about that? What about you? Do you think he had 100 guns? No, his dad. What about you? You think 100? I think he was lying. You think he was lying? What about you, Arthur? I think he, his dad for, was from the army. Oh, yes, his dad could have been from the army. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. I never really considered that. Gosh, I'll have to revise the whole story. No, his dad wasn't from the army. So, um, yeah, so I don't, think he, I don't think he was telling the truth. Now, but... What I remember, though, is not is what happened after this, because my mum was driving the car. And so my mum could have said, what could she have done? She could have said what? What could she have said at that point or, or you know, before I jumped in? What do you think it might be tempting to do when, when Clifford said, my dad's got 100 guns? What would we like to do? Argue? Say, no! Your dad doesn't have 100 guns. You're lying, you're exaggerating by 90%, 99% or something. It could have been tempting to do that, but what I remember is my mum, yeah. she just completely, she just said, it doesn't matter. Let's talk about something else. And my mum was very wise. She was wise because she realised that Clifford and I could have had a 
big argument about something that really wasn't that important, that didn't really matter as to whose dad had the most guns, okay? I still think my dad had more guns than his dad, but anyway. <laughs> All right? So the point, we're going to talk about this later, is that there are some things as Christians that there's just no point in us arguing and debating about. It's just, we just step around them and move on to what is important. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your work that is being worked out in our lives. I thank you for these children here as they hear the gospel and as they are being brought along to church by their parents and as they seek to know Christ and as they learn more about what Jesus has done on the cross and what is important, I pray that you would capture their hearts and help them to learn about you and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that they would learn that the most important thing is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we're done, and we're going to um, we'll sing a song, and then we'll come back, and um, there, is there a worksheet? I'm, I think my order of service is all over the show tonight, but um, there is a worksheet, is there? Yeah, yeah there is a worksheet. Um, so maybe when we sing the song, you guys can go and get your worksheets from over at the door there. All right?
show you, show you. We've got to do it again. Wait, you follow me. I'll show you it again. Yep, follow me.
us give thanks for this offering. Let us pray. Lord, we give you praise and thanks that Christ is all, and so all we have is Christ's. And so we pray, Lord God, that you again would give us generous hearts to acknowledge that reality in our lives, that we would be willing to make all available for you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I'd like to pray with you again in the pastoral prayer um, and just bring some needs and prayers and requests before the Lord. Let us pray.
I want to invite you to turn back with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. Tonight we're going to focus and look at Titus 3 verse 9. But it's always good for us to put, and put it into its context. And so I want to read Titus uh, 3 uh, from... Uh, I'm going to read from actually verse 4 tonight. Titus chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 4. Listen to God's word. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Amen. May God bless that reading from his holy word. Let us pray and ask God to help us not only understand but also to apply his word. Lord God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is full of authority. And that as we read your word, we hear your voice speaking to us. And so, Lord God, we do pray that you would grant to us believing and obedient hearts to receive your word. Mix your word up with faith in our hearts, that there would be fruit in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It's truly a wonderful thing, becoming a Christian. If you're a Christian today, I don't know if you realize it, but you are now an adoptee. You've been adopted into a new family. You've been adopted into the family of God. You've come out of the world. You've come out from under the prince of the power of the air. You've come out from, the, from under the forces of darkness. And now you are a child of light. You're a child of God. You have a new family. And it's a wonderful joy. And I often reflect on that, the, the wonderful and, and excellent privilege of being a Christian. But every family, of course, has their interesting characters. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably met some interesting characters and maybe encountered some 
quirky questions and topics that sometimes come up in, in Christian circles for debate. A very common one, of course, is uh, views on the end times. What will happen is, are these the end times now? Is Jesus going to come back? Are the things that we're seeing in the world today, are these the signs of the times? Or is this simply something that has happened in the past and we really don't know? Now, a debate and a discussion like that is not an unbiblical discussion, but as you're probably aware, sometimes people have very strong views, and so it's, it's, some, it's possibly easier just to say, well, you, know, you hold your views and I hold my views. God bless you, brother. Sometimes, though, um, the, the debates and discussions can be a little bit shall we say, a bit, bit more quirky. Um, I remember once being pulled aside by a lovely couple who said to me, Jeff, do you realise that in the, the church service this morning you referred to the children as kids? And I said, yeah, I probably did. And they said, do you know that in the Bible Jesus says he will make a separation between the sheep and the goats? And kids are baby goats. And so you should not refer to Christian children as being kids. And I said, well, I, I, I thank you for raising that with me. I honestly didn't think of it like that. Um, but I probably won't be able to change my referring to children like that. It's part of you know, how we speak in, in our language. And so, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a cute thing, but again, it's something that you're not, I would suggest you wouldn't have a long and protracted argument or debate about. I certainly didn't argue and debate with them on that, on that topic. And then there are, of course, there are things that are just simply quite unbiblical. I, when we moved to Gisborne to plant the church there, we encountered a number of Christians and churches, and there had been a whole church that established which held to a view called British Israelism. And if you're not familiar with this, probably, and hardly anybody outside of Gisborne had ever heard of it, it was this conviction that when the tribes of Israel were taken away out of the Promised Land by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, um, that the ones who were taken by the Assyrians, the ten tribes, they never really returned to the Promised Land. And those tribes eventually found their way, some of them, to England. And so that the the, some of the from the tribe of Judah found their way to England and the British monarchy is descended from the tribe of Judah and did those feet walk upon England's shores. You've heard the, that wonderful hymn. And, and again, that's something that, well, it's, it's not really even the Bible and I don't think it's even edifying and isn't it a bit exclusionary for anyone who doesn't claim British ancestry to somehow set apart one people over others. And so that's clearly something that is an unbiblical, but it's those uh, unbiblical discussion, but it's those things that kind of fall in the middle that sometimes are difficult for us. Sort of illustrates, though, but all of these stories illustrates the danger that we as Christians face of getting distracted by discussions and debates and controversies that which really in the end, don't advance the gospel. There's a tendency, there's always a danger for us to get sucked into debates and discussions and controversies which really don't advance the gospel. 
And as we look here, we're looking tonight at verse 9 of chapter 3, where Paul writes to Titus, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And so, as we noticed this morning, he makes these comments in the light of verses 4 to 7, where in verse... And, uh, which says, when the goodness and sub, uh, loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, where Paul, he unfolds the, God, the saving work of God, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which regenerates us, in other words, gives us new birth, and also is poured out on us so that we may serve him. He says, knowing these things, do good works, and here's the one side of it, okay, knowing these things, embrace good works, but on the other side, avoid, okay, avoid these foolish discussions and controversies and dissensions and these things that really don't profit. The good works are excellent and profitable. The discussions and debates that he tells us to avoid, they are worthless and unprofitable. So it's kind of like the other side of, of, well, it's not really the other side of the coin because it's not the same coin, but it's like the contrast, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, do this, but avoid that. And so we, we know that this was an issue in the early church because if you go back to chapter um, 1, he tells Titus in verse 10 of chapter 1, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And he goes on and says, uh, verse 13, This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound of faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So we know that there was this problem. We know that there was this tendency in the Christian church and that there was that and so therefore Paul does warn Titus about it and if you go into Timothy we see similar warnings and we'll touch on some of those tonight so the the Cretans were attracted to these worthless and pointless discussions and it's worth maybe just pausing for a moment and asking ourselves the question are there things that you know, I'm drawn to. Uh, are there things that I find myself, whether it's something I read on, you know, social media, or whether it's something I hear on the radio that really gets me sort of riled up, or, or sort of draws me in, and and or things we might read on, you know, read on the internet, or I spend all my time watching YouTube videos about, and and I've watched, you know, hundred videos on this particular topic. It's worth pausing, isn't it, and asking yourself the question is, is this something that is advancing the gospel and edifying my faith and growing me as a Christian, or is this a distraction? Is this something that is over there where we have Christ at the center and, and the pure doctrine of the scriptures, and this is something which is kind of off to the side and I'm getting drawn into that? I think it's, it's worth posing that to ourselves if we want to be honest and we want to evaluate ourselves tonight as we look at this passage. However, I've always found this, and, and maybe you're wondering too, like it is a difficult 
topic because the, the question then is, you may be thinking, well, what is it, Jeff, what is a foolish controversy? What, what actually qualifies? Uh, what should I be avoiding? Are you, are you saying I shouldn't study, you know, read systematic theology, or I shouldn't, you know, ask the question of the, the authorship of a book of the Bible, um, or about some uh, a, a doctrine that, that, that is spoken about in the scriptures and about the, the Trinity or the relationship between the persons of the Trinity? Um, are you talking about that? Are you saying I shouldn't study theology and do deep dive into things? Um, you know, here's an example. In, in theology, sometimes we talk about something called supralapsarianism versus infralapsarianism. Now, from the outside, you, what I've just said to you, I suspect for a lot of you, you're thinking, well, that's just a great example, isn't it, Jeff? But when you dig into that, so the, the, the question is, when God elected a number to himself, did he elect us as he saw us, just as he, he was created us, or did he see us as fallen in Adam? Did he, did he elect us as those who have fallen in Adam and in Christ, or did he elect us just simply even outside of this? And, and um, on the one level, it can seem like a, an unimportant discussion, but when you start digging into it, it does have implications. It does have implications about the gospel, about God's purposes, about God's electing love, and so on. So it's difficult, isn't it? Um, you know, it may seem insignificant, and how do we know? Secondly, here's an even more difficult question, is how do I know if someone is posing a question or raising an issue genuinely or just simply to be a stirrer? You know, you know, sometimes in our family we say, ah, you're just being a stirrer. You know, people come into a family gathering and they make a comment, you know, maybe it's about global warming or Donald Trump or whatever it is, and you ah, you're just trying to stir, you know. And, and how do we know that? How, do you, how can we even uh, evaluate a person's motives? And, 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 and see, we can't do that, can we? We can't see into a person's heart. We don't know. So I think that's why it's really good for us to look at these, this uh, passage, because I think this passage does really help us. It helps us to deal with these questions. I think, first of all, and maybe deal with the, sec the second one first, which is the, how do we know the attitude? Notice what Paul does here. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and dissensions. What is he saying? He is talking to you, okay? And he is telling you and I that you and I, we should avoid foolish controversies, okay? That we're the ones that shouldn't be raising debates and questions just for the sake of it. That we shouldn't be trying to distract people from the gospel. That we shouldn't be wanting to be divisive um, and, and argumentative. In other words, what is the attitude of our heart? Are we looking for division or unity? If you've become a member of the church here or you've heard someone take membership vows, you know that one of the things we promise is that we'll work and study the peace and the unity of the church. We believe that that's a biblical principle. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Unity is a good thing. We shouldn't be seeking to provide, uh, to, to produce division and arguments. And so, you know, the, what, what, 
Paul is doing in this passage when he says to you and I, avoid these things. What he's saying is, avoid these foolish debates and arguments, but rather pursue good works. What is it that you really want to devote your life to? What is it that you, you, you are drawn to? Is it, are you drawn to quarreling and arguments? Paul says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, in verses 24 and 25, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So in other words, leaders in the church are to model this. They are to be those who, are, who avoid quarrels, who are peaceable, who are gentle in their approach. In, in contrast to that, Paul warns about false teachers in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. He says that they are what? They are puffed up with conceit. Puffed up with conceit. This is this idea that they are full of their own self-importance. And they are overly confident in their knowledge and their ability maybe to run you know, ring, ring, rings around someone in biblical debates. Maybe you've met someone like that. And, and, and they just want to argue with you, and you can tell that they're just really spoiling for a fight, and they've got that glint in their eye because they know this doctrine down pat, and they're going to they're gonna nail you on it. And, uh, and Paul, though, actually says that is, a, that is an example of someone who is a false teacher. He says they're puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. That's the, so the, it's, it comes, there's a heart attitude that has this result, and we are to avoid that. Maybe don't, don't stress yourself out about trying to evaluate everyone else's attitude and you know, whether they're genuine or not, but for yourself and myself, we are to step around these things, step around that attitude. If we see ourselves getting drawn into something, if we see a tendency arising in us of being argumentative all the time, we have to avoid that. And, and you notice what he says there, the result. You see the fruit, right? A, a, a believer who understands the gospel devotes themselves to good works. And that is excellent and, and profitable, he says in verse 8. Whereas when we, if we give ourselves over to controversies and quarrels and endless dis disputes and, and, and discussions about, as Paul says here, pointless things, then he says in Timothy, it, what it does is it produces what? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion. I'm quoting from 1 Timothy 6, 4. That's the root. That's the result. And, and so you, you, you start to generate all of this, 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 this um, evil attitudes and, 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 and uh, mindset amongst God's people, evil suspicions, slander, dissension. I remember when I was a, a new Christian and I was talking to a, an older believer who was kind of mentoring me. He happened to be my English teacher and and I was explaining to him some church controversy that my some controversy that was going on in my church, and I expected him to sort of come in alongside of me and say, "Yeah, you know, you're you're taking the right stand there, Jeff. You know, you're good on you for for um, for for you know making this a point of dispute and argument." 
And I remember he listened to me very patiently, and at the end he just said, he said, well, it's very sad because he says, church disputes and controversies are hardly ever edifying, meaning when these arguments and things go on, they never build up your faith, do they? They tend to have the opposite effect. And so we are to avoid these things. We are to avoid these unnecessary things. So that's, the, that's about the attitude, to, to, to avoid these things. It's speak to yourself about it. Don't try and evaluate other people. But what about the subject? Well, he says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. So what's the topics here? Um, is it something that advances the growth of the gospel or not? Is it, is it something that encourages Christians to live for their faith, uh, to live out their faith in Christ? Or is it something that is going to discourage believers? Um, I often think of, and if you're old enough, you probably remember Frank Peretti novels. Okay? Uh, he wrote books like The Present Darkness. And these were novels, um, Christian novels about demonic activity. And um, I read, I think I read one of them, and I, I remember this, what the impact it had on me was like, this is terrible because what he's described is there's all these demonic demons and forces that are going around kind of, there's one up in the corner there, and there's one, you know, that's how the way he kind of describes it. And it's like, my golly gosh, you know, God has got a lot of work to do because it seems like things are just running riot. And so that is an example of, you know, picking up on a topic that is speculative, that the Bible doesn't really speak about in such great detail, and, and, and maybe, you know, he's not arguing, obviously he wrote a book about it, but it had that effect of maybe questioning God's power, God questioning God's sovereignty. So what are the things? He says, avoid foolish controversies. Paul says a similar thing in 2 Timothy 2.23. He says... Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Foolish you know, a controversy that you know there is actually no answer to. You know, um, people used to joke about medieval theologians, and they would say, these theologians, they spend all their time arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And, and this was the perception of it was sort of like a joke as to how ridiculous sometimes theological speculation could be. Um, St. Augustine is quoted by Calvin about another speculation, which is this. What was God doing before he created the cosmos? You see, we don't know the answer to that question, do we? What was God doing in all eternity before he created the cosmos and began to communicate his revealed world to his people through the scriptures? Um, St. Augustine gives a great answer. He says, you know what God was doing? He was creating hells for people who ask stupid questions. <laughs> In other words, he's saying, you don't, there's no possible way of knowing the answer to that question. We can say general things, that God was fully glorified, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they dwelt in perfect fellowship and unity and trinity. But beyond that, we don't know. And so there's not a lot of point in talking about it necessarily and certainly not in arguing or quarrelling about it. He says also genealogies. Uh, again, this is something that Paul writes to Timothy about in 1 Timothy 1.4. He says, he tells them not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather 
than stewardship from God that is by faith. Seems that there was this unhealthy obsession, and you can probably imagine it in the very early church where people could trace, maybe if you were a Jewish Christian, you could trace your lineage back to some wonderful saint of the past, whether to David or to Rahab or someone like that. And, and, and people would have had debates and, and, and spent all their time sort of researching their genealogy. Can you think of a church that does that? Well, a so-called church. You know, that's what the, the Mormon church is obsessed with, isn't it? Researching genealogies. Uh, it's, a, it's a pointless thing. And he says also dissensions and quarrels about the law. It's interesting, the word he, use, he uses here is actually a word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where um, Moses sees the two Jewish men fighting, quarreling. It's the same word. And when, we, when uh, Matthew quotes Isaiah about the Lord Jesus, he says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. It's like a partisan rivalry. And, and Paul tells the, the Corinthian church, he says, this sort of quarreling, this sort of party spirit, I have Paul, I have Apollos, I have Cephas, you know. I belong to this camp, I belong to that camp. He says that kind of quarrelling, he says, is something that is not of the spirit, but it's of the flesh in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, not of the are you not of the flesh and behaving in only a human way? And particularly, of course, he singles out here um, quarrels about the law. You know, the law is good and godly, isn't it? God gives us the law. It's the law of God. But it is not the focus of the Christian life. The law is the schoolmaster, leads us to Christ, it informs our behavior. James says, what, James chapter 1, verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In other words, we should be focused on you know, rather than controversies and arguments about the law, and often it's the arguments about the application of the law, isn't it? What, what is it that constitutes covetousness? You know, if, am I coveting if I say, hey, that's a nice shirt you're wearing uh, tonight? Or, you know, lovely handbag you've got there. Am I coveting? Or, you know, and, and, and sometimes people get into debates and arguments about these kinds of things. And, and it shouldn't be something that binds our consciences so that we separate from, from others. Rather, it is to set us free as we're set free in Christ Jesus. If the Son will set you free, you'll be free indeed. I'll give you a couple of examples of situations that I've been involved with that may help to illustrate this. One Monday morning, I had a knock on the door, opened the door, and there was a very agitated um, slightly upset and angry brother from, from the church and um, I can't even remember his name it's probably just as well but he said to me he said I want to um, not from this church by the way he said I, I need to talk to you and I said yeah great what, what's, the, what's up you know and he said I want to talk about um, your views on baptism because you believe that we should baptise infants and, and, you, and you're happy to do that by sprinkling. And, and I think that's completely unbiblical. And I think you, 
should only baptize someone who professes to be a Christian, and it must be by full immersion right down into the water. And, um, and he said, you know, that, that is wrong, and I don't see how you can continue as being a pastor of the church. Now, this is a Presbyterian church, by the way, but we always welcomed and embraced uh, Baptist members uh, of the church. And um, he wanted to correct my theology, and I had to think at that moment. I thought, do I invite him in and have a major, and I spent all day debating this, over something that I am convinced is I'm in the have a biblical position on, and he is convinced that he has a biblical position on, bless him, or do I sidestep this? And I sidestepped it. I said, brother, you are very convinced of your position, and I'm convinced of my position. We are not going to change each other's views on this. So I don't think it's worth us having a big debate and an argument about this thing. I'll give you another example. Uh, we had a lovely couple in the church, and a um, delightful couple, older couple. And I preached a sermon on the qualifications for deacons. And I preached and said, a deacon must not be given to much wine. Okay? A deacon must not be given to much wine. It mustn't be an alcoholic. It mustn't be an over-imbiber and, and guilty of the charge of drunkenness. And they came and they said to the elders, they said, this is completely unacceptable. You as elders need to say that an elder or a deacon in the church must not drink alcohol, must be a teetotaler. And our elders came together and we talked about this and our eldership board, which was teetotalers and those who would drink, we discussed and we agreed and we said, this is something that takes us outside of the bounds of Scripture. The Scripture is clear. <clears throat> We're not going to go beyond Scripture. We're not going to enter into this debate. You know, They gave us some a lot of reading material to read on this topic. We said, we respect your convictions on this, but this is not something we're going to debate with you and argue with you about. Sadly, they left the church and, and found another church. This is, these are the, sometimes the issues that come up. We could have I could have chosen with the other brother to engaged in a very long, and, and I have debated with people about baptism views, and I'm very uh, happy to explain my views, but not in a way, of course, which is going to be divisive with someone who's very angry and upset and wants to change my views to conform with their views. And in the same way on, the, on this issue of teetotalism, we could have engaged in a very big and, and I'm sure very complicated discussion and written some papers on this and passed books to each other and maybe watched YouTube videos and things like that. But we chose not to because we felt that it was an unprofitable debate and discussion. And so Paul's advice to Titus and through Titus to us is to avoid these things. So this is where you think rugby, guys. The sidestep. Got to learn the sidestep. There are times in our Christian life where we step around these issues. We don't we don't take it head on. We step around and, and we, we keep heading for the try line. We keep heading uh, forward with the gospel to eternity. Don't get drawn into them. It may be tempting. Sometimes it is very tempting. Sometimes it is something that we can just 
find ourselves getting subtly sucked into. But focusing on these arguments and focusing on these controversies can sometimes, hear me carefully, can sometimes be an indication, as Paul warns about with false teachers, of something wrong with our hearts. That we are drawn to controversies and debates and arguments more than we are drawn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Controversies and arguments about baptism and teetotalism and all that, they will not save you. They will not provide eternal life. They will not give you peace. Only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only, what do we read here? When the goodness, verse 4, and loving kindness of God our Savior appear, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable. Get the, Paul's emphasis there. They are excellent and profitable for you. But, but, avoid, sidestep, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Worthless. They don't lead to anything. You know, in the book of Hebrews, and which way is Hebrews? Hebrews is just here. How wonderful. Hebrews chapter 3. Let me read verse 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, there is always that danger, isn't there? That if we're drawn into controversies, and as I say, sometimes this is the case. I'm not saying in every instance, but sometimes when we're drawn into the controversies, we're drawn because our hearts are not drawn to Christ. They're drawn to these debates, genealogies, dissensions, arguments, things that don't bring eternal life, things that do not profit. And so... We need to be a church. We need, let's be a community, brothers and sisters, that as we speak to one another, we speak gospel truth and gospel love and, and that we encourage each other on to our, towards our ultimate goal. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, you are very gracious to us. You're very patient. I think if we were to look at ourselves and see the way we sometimes live and the things we focus our attention on and the discussions and debates we have, we would feel frustrated. But you are patient, you are long-suffering, you're slow to anger. 
Lord God, I pray that you would help us redirect our hearts and minds toward Christ. Forgive us, Lord, where we have become distracted by unimportant things, things that really profit nothing, things that won't produce godliness, things that won't lead to salvation in Christ Jesus. Lord, pull us back from these things. Help us to sidestep them in the first place so that we might be a church that is gripped by the gospel, that Jesus Christ would be the center and that we would seek him and his glory and the joy and the peace that comes from knowing him above all other things. So Lord, give us discerning hearts and minds. Help us, most importantly, to be able to discern our own motives, our own attitudes, but also help us to discern what is a a worthwhile discussion and what is a, a pointless discussion. That we, Lord God, might grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ our Saviour. As we pray in his name, amen. There is one gospel. That's going to be our final song. There is one gospel.
grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Praise God.
to you.